I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. And this is Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. We are a new show breaking down the anime news, views, and shows you care about each and every week. I can't think of a better studio to bring something like this to life. Yeah, I agree. We're covering all the classics. If I don't know a lot about Godzilla, which I do, but I'm trying to pretend (laughs) that I don't right now. Hold it in. And our current faves. Luffy must have his due. (laughs) Tune in every week for the latest anime updates and possibly a few debates. I remember, what was that? (laughs) Say what you're going to say and I'll circle back. You can listen to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Listen carefully to this clip, and you can make out the sounds of two men, one of whom is the legendary actor Charlie Chaplin, slapping each other in the face for comedic effect. Chaplin, known for the slapstick humour of his films, was part of a generation of actors who managed to continue working through the transition from the era of silent film to one filled with dialogue and sound. The introduction of sound wasn't the only way that people revolutionised cinema, and it won't be the last. So what does the history of cinema tell us about the evolution of technology in the arts? Moving images are just pervasive. It's the the one art form, I think, that people are involved with every day. You know, people are looking at and sharing and making moving images every single day. So it's the most important art form, I think, of our time. Some researchers exploring how technology can continue to change the film-watching experience are looking at ways that audiences can change that experience, influencing what they see on screen with their thoughts. How can brain activity be used to change the plot of a film? And is there a place for the traditionally passive experience of watching a film to become more interactive? Or will that detract from what we value about cinema? In the future, audiences will have the opportunity to immerse themselves in a collective experience of controlling an interactive film. This is Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. How long have you worked at the Museum of the Moving Image? Um, since 1985. Wow. <laughs> long time. Actually, we opened... Uh, David Schwartz is the chief curator of the Museum of the Moving Image in New York, where I called him up on Skype. Our core exhibition is called Behind the Screen, and it looks at the whole process and world behind production and exhibition and distribution for movies and television. David explained that the original motivation for the creation of moving images as we know them today wasn't really for entertainment, but for science. You know, the history goes goes back actually even before the 19th century. You know, there were forms like the magic lantern. There were all these 
forms of what we now call pre-cinema, where there was an impulse to make images move. But really in the late 1800s, you had photographers like um, Edward Mybridge in America and Etienne Jules Marais in France, who were mainly had a scientific interest. They wanted to study the movement of animals and people. So they invented cameras that could take a series of still images, and then you could analyze motion. So that interest was there, and that naturally led to the evolution of cinema. I mean, I think there was just an impulse to capture reality and record it and share it. But I think we, you know, there's a pretty common agreement that the movies as we understand them and as we experience them really started in 1895 with the Lumiere brothers. They were French photographers who invented a camera, uh, a machine called the cinematograph, which was a combination of a camera and a projector. And so they could record motion pictures and then present the motion pictures um, projected onto a large screen to a paying audience. And that started in 1895. What would it have been like to be in that audience, one of the first people to watch a film? What would they have been watching and what would the experience have been like? The Lumiere Brothers films were, you know, roughly between 40 seconds and a minute long. And they recorded just bits of reality. You know, I think the most famous of the early films was the arrival of a train at a station in La Ciotat in France. So audiences saw a train platform at a, at a station and a train coming in. You know, there was a, the sort of mythology was that audiences screamed in terror because they, they thought a real train was coming towards them. Now, that's, of course, uh, not really what, what was happening with the audience. I think the audience was just excited when they realized what this machine could do. What did the equipment look like that made these very early films that filmed the, you know, the train arriving at the station? There are not that many of them in existence in the world. And it's basically a box with a lens. It, I mean, it looks like, like a very simple camera. It was fairly portable. You know, there would be a tripod and this sort of square-shaped box that was a few inches thick and a lens and a, and a crank. So it's a very easy machine to move around. You know, fundamentally, the, the technology of cinema didn't change a lot in, the, in its early years. I mean, the cameras got bigger and they could hold more film, but basically these were boxes with, with strips of film running through. It was a very mechanical art form. One of the most obvious changes in cinema came when the historically black and white images began to gain some color. You know, the first color films were actually hand painted. So people, usually women in, in factory type settings would literally paint on the film strip to add color. And so you would get what were essentially like tinted films and they could be quite beautiful, but it was, it was not a realistic color. It was just, it was very colorful and decorative. And color technology evolved into the 1930s, and then we finally, in the 30s, had the breakthrough of Technicolor film uh, that we associate with movies like Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. In that process, you, you literally have colored dye printed onto the film strip. You have black and white film, and then colored dye is added, and you get a very brilliant color. It was an expensive process, so Technicolor was replaced by less expensive forms of color, but color really became the standard by 
the late 1950s, early 1960s. And by the 60s, almost every film was in color unless there was an artistic choice to do black and white. And then there was sound. The advent of sound was a real turning point. Um, and that it was really uh, the release of the jazz singer in 1927. Starring Al Jolson that had, it was basically a silent film that had some synchronized sound sequences. And in those early films, that early process in sound, the soundtrack was actually on a disc. It was separate from the film. The projectionist would play the film and then at the same time have essentially a turntable running with the soundtrack and, and he would have to make sure they were synchronized. It took a few years before they perfected a process where the sound could be on the film. And with the advent of sound, you also have also what was standardized was the speed at, at which a film runs through a projector. The camera person would actually crank the camera and could choose a different speed. And then the projectionist could play the film at different speeds. But when you had sound, you had to have a standard. So 24 frames per second became the standard. I'm part of the Netflix generation, but the entertainment I enjoy obviously owes a lot to the invention of the television. And so too does cinema. Where the most valuable piece of furniture is the television set. And the popular local jest is that the only real emergency telephone calls go to the family doctor or the TV repairman. You know, the next two big revolutions in technology, one was in the 1950s when you had the advent of widescreen cinema. When television was introduced in the late 1940s and Hollywood realized that it was competing with television for audiences. So you saw the birth of CinemaScope and widescreen. Of course, not every big development in the history of cinema has had the same impact. You know, I think in the 1950s, there were sort of crude forms of 3D where audiences would wear glasses with red and blue filters. And in the early forms of 3D, you actually needed two projectors linked together. So you would have the film running on two separate movie projectors. It was fun, it was sort of a gimmick, but it didn't really work, it wasn't really vivid. I mean, you didn't really get vivid 3D until digital cinema came along. Now it's very common to have very good 3D. In your opinion, putting aside the cinematograph, what would you say has been the most influential technology in the entire history of cinema? You know, right now I have to say the advent of the computer and the moving image. I mean, I think it's changed everything. Every step of the filmmaking process now is, is digital, you know, is, is computer-based. So that includes editing, special effects, creating a, a soundtrack, and photography. You know, the, the cameras now are digital. So everything about how films are made is based in, you know, using computers and using digital technology. Cinema has changed a lot in the last century. So what next? How will the technologists of today improve on the film-watching experience? After the break, we'll look at new research into how brain-computer interface technology can be combined with interactive cinema to make the audience feel far more involved in the film-watching experience. Instead of just sitting and passively viewing a film, audiences will be empowered to collectively engage, maybe collaborate or compete, controlling aspects of the films like the plot we mentioned or something more passive like the sound and the colours. We'll be right back. 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. This week, the world's first IVF baby turns 40. The jar we're looking at is called a desiccator, and um, it's what the Petri dish sits in. It keeps it at body temperature um, so that the sperm and the egg in the Petri dish can do their thing and sort of meet up, really. But it's very weird looking at it because just to think that my life started in that, it's just very weird. (laughs) Louise Brown was born on the 25th of July, 1978, weighing £5, 12 ounces. IVF has come a long way since then, and is now pretty commonplace, with 68,000 cycles in the UK in 2016. But should we be concerned with the rising rates of fertility treatments? There is um, some interesting data out there which suggests that sperm quality has declined over the last 50 or 60 years. Join me, Hannah Devlin, on The Guardian Science Weekly. Just search for Science Weekly on your podcast app, or head over to theguardian.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to Chips With Everything. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Before the break, we took a trip through history with the chief curator of the Museum of the Moving Image in New York to look at some of the biggest technological inventions that helped shape film. When the Lumiere brothers first came up with the cinematograph, people probably found the big brown box quite strange. But more than a century later, cinema is huge. But is there room for further improvement? What about if we turn this traditionally passive pastime into something the audience can impact themselves? I'm Dr. Paulina Zioga. I'm a lecturer and researcher at Safoche University and the director of Interactive Filmmaking Lab. Can you tell me about this Interactive Filmmaking Lab? So what do you do there on a kind of day-to-day basis? Well, the Interactive Filmmaking Lab uh, is a newly established group bringing together researchers from Staffordshire universities together with external collaborators uh, who work on expanded cinema and experimental filmmaking that goes beyond uh, what is the mainstream two-dimensional viewing of a film and it often involves the use of interactive technologies. So we are focusing more on interactive filmmaking and media from a creative but also technological and scientific aspect. The idea of interactive film isn't new. 
Interactive filmmaking and interactive technologies for cinema um, actually go back to the 1960s when we had the first production of an interactive film called Kino Automat at the time, country of Czechoslovakia. What has changed in recent years is that we have new technologies that, for example, have been um, developed. But in the process, they started being explored by researchers and individual film- filmmakers for their potential for cinema. Virtual reality nowadays has led to the introduction of special sections in major international festivals and its potential has also been acknowledged by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. How does somebody control what happens in the film with their brain then? So the way these devices uh, work is by using um, techniques like electroencephalography. So that's when they put the things on your head, right? Yes. Okay. So these devices uh, have sensors that can be attached to different positions on the head, such as the forehead of the person wearing them, and they record the electrical activity of the brain along the scalp then the data of this activity can be transmitted to a computer where the signal can be analyzed in order to extract certain features. One example is the different frequency bands of the electrical signal of the brain that are associated to different brain and cognitive states. A brief example, uh, we have theta frequency band that is associated to a relaxed state. Uh, We have alpha band that is associated to quite wakefulness. Beta is more dominant when we are um, consciously awake and focusing. And gamma is related to uh, more intense mental activity and tension. Extracting this information, we can use it to control different outputs. So, for example, in the frame of a film, if we measure that the person wearing the device um, is becoming less engaged, uh, maybe the plot and the narrative of the film will not progress, will not move uh, forward until the person focuses again. Polina recently teamed up with the digital design studio of the Glasgow School of Art, among many others, to produce a live cinema performance that used this BCI technology. En Hedwana, a manifesto of falling. It is a live cinema event, so apart from the projected film moving image, we can have one or more live elements. For example, um, the live act of performers, live electronics, and of course the live interactive film. And that is combined with a brain-computer interface system, essentially headsets that can be worn by the performers and the audience in order for them to be able to control through their brain activity aspects of the event, like the moving image. Okay, so... The fact that it's the first one used with multiple brains. So you've said there you've got the performers and the viewers are wearing these headsets. How does that work then? Does it kind of combine all of the signals from all of these people or does it use them individually? So in that case, what we did is that we divided the work into two parts. The first part is a part where audience is introduced in the story And um, the film is controlled only by the actor's brain activity. 
The second part starts with a film being controlled only by the audience's brain activity and in the process towards the end, the film is controlled by the merged brain activity of the audience and the actress. Now, how exactly we did this, we used the headsets that I mentioned before. And in terms of extracting the information of the brain activity and their cognitive states, we map the different frequency bands and the power of them to different colors. So, for example, we mapped their uh, band that is associated to a more relaxed state to the color of blue, uh, the one that is associated to more focused, awake state was mapped to green, and the states that were more stressed or emotionally engaged were mapped to the red. Then we would combine these three colors and that would create in real time a constantly changing color that was applied to the film that was originally in black and white. And this way, the atmosphere of the narrative, but also the entire event was set by the cognitive, the brain state and activity of the audience and the performer. This was obviously a really experimental performance. What did you learn from it and how are you going to take that forward? This work uh, enabled us, apart from designing a new system for facilitating the interaction, also to collect a lot of valuable data, both neuroscientific as well as behavior. And the results showed us that the majority of the audience were able to identify when the brain activity was controlling the film. Uh, it also showed that they tended to be more attentive when the brain activity was interacting. And that was during the second part I mentioned before. Whereas when the brain activity was merged with a performance, they were more emotionally engaged. So I think in essence that showed us that applying brain-computer interaction for cinema, but also other interactive technologies, personalizes the experience of the viewer, makes it more special and meaningful for them, and also makes them uh, more attentive and emotionally engaged. Using brain-computer interface in interactive cinema may add another level to an audience's experience, but does it also risk taking something away? I go to the cinema to relax, to get away from things in my life that require my input and to passively absorb somebody else's story. Does this new kind of interactive experience require active participation from the audience? And if so, can it really catch on? If we look back at the history of cinema and film, the experience of watching a film was always augmented in one way or another. So in the silent film era, viewers um, would watch the film together with live music. Then we had um, the invention of the TV and the introduction of the VCR that enabled people to watch films um, at their home and using the remote control, pause, star, rewind, move forward the film as they please. So I think these technologies are part of the history and evolution of cinematic experience. It will probably create new type of experience, new types of creativity for cinema and add to the options um, of the audience.
how do you feel about this notion of interactive cinema then, whether it's using these brain waves or not? Do you like the idea or does it kind of put you off? On an aesthetic level, I mean, I, I tend to be a bit old fashioned. I tend to like the idea that the artist or the filmmaker creates a story and I go and watch it and experience it and I and think about it and respond to it. And I, I feel like that's inter interactive enough. But at the same time, we're in this incredible period of, of very rapid change and I think exciting forms are emerging. So I think we, you know, we all need to be open to that. I'd like to thank David Schwartz and Dr. Polina's Yoga for joining me this week. We'll have a link to the Museum of the Moving Image and to Polina's live brain-computer cinema performance research on this week's episode description on The Guardian website. Don't forget, you can send me an email at chipspodcast at theguardian.com with any questions or ideas you might have. That's all for this week. I'm Jordan Erica Weber. Thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies, I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show yeah. is absolutely yeah. incredible. Or anime. Yeah, and under this sure. mask is another mask. <laughs> you can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.